Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. On October 16, 1968, Americans Tommy Smith and John Carlos staged a protest that was unimaginable and de facto forbidden. They stood atop the podium where they were accepting their medals, and as the star-spangled banner played, they both bowed their heads and raised their fists. Their protest set off an international fury. The pair was kicked out of the games, and just a few years later, in 1975, Rule 50 was set in place in the Olympic Charter. It forbade athletes from any kind of demonstration or distribution of political, religious, or racial propaganda at Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. More than 50 years later, Gwen Berry, a U.S. Olympic hammer thrower, took a stand against Rule 50. And as she accepted her medal at the 2019 Pan American Games, she raised her fist in protest of injustice in America. She paid dearly for her demonstration, losing sponsors like Nike and the U.S. Track and Field Foundation. Then, in 2020, the video of George Floyd's killing swept the nation and protests took place in major cities around the U.S. Gwen's demonstration, which seemed insurgent at the time, had become commonplace. Her willingness to stand up for what she believes has spurred a conversation around the ethics of Rule 50. Does this rule silence Olympic athletes? And should it continue to have a place at the Games? Then again, maybe some rules are made to be broken. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. You might have heard Gwen Berry on our previous episode about Rule 50, the right to Olympic protest. And if you didn't, we highly recommend going back and listening to it. Here, I dig a bit deeper with Gwen. She shares with us the experiences that led her to activism what was running through her head the day she won gold at the Pan American Games, and where she plans to go from here. Good morning, Molly. Good morning, Gwen. So nice to meet you and see you. Thank you. So nice (laughs) to meet you as well. I'm super excited for this conversation. I've been doing a lot of research on your life, and it's quite spectacular. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. 
So first, can you just introduce yourself, who you are, what you do? Hi, guys. My name is Gwendolyn Berry. I am a 2016-2020 Olympic hammer thrower for the United States of America. I'm sponsored by Puma, New York Athletic Club. I'm a mother, a sister, a daughter, and an activist. What were you like as a kid? I was crazy as a kid. (laughs) I was like extremely, extremely like just athletic outside all the time. I was always like sports oriented because I grew up with my uncle who was basically like the same age as me. So he was kind of like my brother. And I, I was the only girl in my family at the time. So I had to like hang out with all the guys and play sports and my dad because he was young and he wanted a boy as his first child. He made me like play sports and he basically treated me like a boy, which is crazy. I can just remember anytime I tried to do anything, my dad would would make sure he made it hard to make <laughs> <laughs> to make executing or succeeding that situation almost impossible, but I did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like I remember when I first learned how to swim. Most parents, they'll take their kid in the shallow end. They'll teach them the basics, you know, put your hands right here. Your feet does this. All the basics, you know, but my dad, he was crazy. He was military. So he just threw me in the deep end and was like, swim. Either you're going to swim or you're going to die. And I was just like, I lived. So <laughs> like my dad was real crazy. So like, any, any, like I say, anytime I would try to do something, he would make the situation harder. It forced me to believe in myself even more to, like, get through or to execute. I can really relate to that. My dad, <laughs> yeah. my dad was also kind of a psychopath. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, the, those are those moments where, as a young kid, you learn that fear doesn't have to sideline you. For sure. You get to walk through that and, like, what a valuable lesson to learn. So your dad got you into athletics and, and you were a basketball player first? I did basketball and uh, softball, baseball first. Okay. And then I used track as a condition to basketball. That's kind of like what all the high school people did. Right. <laughs> exactly. And when did it click for you that track and field, you, you had a real talent there? I only did um, track and field for three years in high school. I knew that my junior year, I was actually pretty good. But my senior year, I saw that like I could really get a scholarship into a D1 school. And basketball wasn't working for me. One, I wasn't tall enough to play the position that I wanted to play. And I wasn't getting enough looks. But two, basketball is so team-oriented. And I felt like no one had the mindset or the work ethic or the drive like I did when I was in high school. And I really didn't like that feeling. I wanted my success in sports to be determined based off me and me alone. I decided to stick with the, you know, individual sport, which was track and field. Track and field, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that as well. So at what point, and was there a specific event or a moment where you realized that you had this particular talent in hammer and that it really appealed to you? So it's crazy with the hammer throw. Um, I never threw in high school. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, I never threw in high school. I was not a thrower. Interesting. Yeah, hammer throw just came um, to me as a freshman, actually, when I went to Southern Illinois, my college. It it was just like something that I never saw before. I never wanted to do. But it kind of like just grew on me because the coach at my university at the time, he begged me to try it because I had reminded him of an athlete that he coached before. I was small. I wasn't strong. I really didn't lift weights. And again, I never threw. So he convinced my high school coach to convince me to try it. And I got really good at it. Usually if you get to 70 meters before you graduate, 
you have, you know, a pretty good opportunity to continue forward in the hammer throwing world. If you can throw like 73 meters, 75 meters out of college, you can definitely try to go professional. Um, once I threw 70 meters at a track meet at Drake University, actually, um, I was just like, okay, yeah, I'll continue to go because I was one year out of the my first Olympic trials. Oh, wow. I graduated in 2011 and the Olympic trials was 2012. Okay. So I was like, I threw 70 meters. I can train another year to try to make the Olympic team. So I went for it. Yeah. I'm going to circle back to something you said. You You were talking about track and field was kind of a ticket to a D1 school. Was that about sports? And education? Oh, for sure. For sure. I think for most kids, especially kids from the hood, kids that come from nothing, sports does do a lot for those kids. It gives those kids out. It gives those kids opportunities where most opportunities are not presented to them. So I feel like that was definitely my ticket out for my education and Mm. for athletics. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I know you grew up in a household that encouraged athletics. We've established that. Did you grow up in a household that encouraged activism? Yes. For the most part, yeah. My dad was a rebel. Like, again, he's military. He was crazy. (laughs) But he was also, like, passionate about Black culture, Black history. And so is his father. Mm. So my grandfather, his name is James. He basically has, like, a museum, an African museum, books, art, old documents, what have you in his house. So, yeah, my my father, because of his father and just because of his uh, spirit and his heart, he was very, very cultural. He was definitely a revolutionist himself. Your dad sounds awesome. Yeah, he's cool. So your dad taught you about Black history and historical features. Is there a particular figure you remember relating to or learning about that really influenced you? More than more than anything, Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. Like, my dad loved Muhammad Ali. He definitely had pictures of John Carlos, Tommy Smith in his room. Any Anybody you can think of. Rappers, poets, mm. athletes. My dad loved them all. That's really cool. So let's get back to track and field and hammer throw. Talk me through the basics. What happens during the hammer competition for people who have never seen or heard of it before? During the hammer competition, it's pretty, I wouldn't say easy going, but it is, it's pretty relaxed only because hammer throwing and most throwing events, jumping, pole vaulting, most field events, like you're not on the line you know, right beside somebody, right? You're not Mm -hmm. literally competing against your competitor side by side. It's more like you. It's only you. I don't know if that's that helps people or that hurts people. I'd rather be next to my competitor because that's just me. So for me, it's kind of like eerie, right? It's it's different. (laughs) You know, you play basketball so much, you play softball so much. I'm used to like being like heads up with my competitor. Hammer throwing has a cage. So we have to go in this tiny little cage with this freaking tiny little ring. (laughs) And we have to throw this ball on a string out of the gates of the cage. It's it's literally like a catch-22 because you have to throw the hammer outside of the cage, but the the doors are like closed in. So you have this little window. (laughs) It's pretty crazy, right? Sounds really hard. It's, It's really hard. And people think it's so easy But it's hard. Mind you, you're turning in like three or four rotations, circles around yourself and then throwing out of this little gate. Oh, my God. So I think hammer throwing, I can honestly say it's probably one of the most hardest events in track and field. Yeah. And how heavy is that ball or the the hammer that you throw? So for the women, the hammer is like 8.9 pounds. For the men, it's 16 pounds. And you're throwing that thing 
How far? Almost the, as far as a football field. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you have to spin around right before. You have to spin around three or four times, and you have to get it out the cage. I don't know who came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a real mental game too? Absolutely. I think mental. I always say, and my dad always told me, the athletes who can control their mind and adrenaline in that moment in the field of play are the ones who are the greatest. Yeah. Like, it's something about being able to do that that is so hard. But if you can lock into that, you're unstoppable. So we've heard that you like to write letters to yourself and read them before you compete. I think that's fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So for me, because I'm an overthinker, I found that it was it was easier for me to just, instead of overthinking, to just read something that I wrote to myself that I can remember that's not foreign, that I'm comfortable with, just to help me calm my mind and not over-rationalize or over-analyze things. I started to do it, I think, back in 2017, because the sports psych, that was okay, but it really didn't help. I felt like I had to, like, search within myself to find the answers I was looking for. And so I just began to talk to myself, write to myself. That's really cool. And you found that that helped? Oh, most definitely. Mm -hmm. Like that helps a lot because again, when you out there in competition, but you can't talk, you really can't go heads up. It's really kind of boring. Of course, what do you do? You think like you get in your head because you ain't got (laughs) nothing else to do. (laughs) So (laughs) it helps a lot. (laughs) So you won gold at the Pan American Games in 2019. Yeah. What does winning a gold medal feel like? Oh, what's crazy is like, it really doesn't hit you until like you're outside of the moment, right? Mm -hmm. Like during the moment, it's like, I've done this before or I've been here before, I've won before. But like, it's kind of like how the world takes to what you did. You know, I've won a thousand competitions. But like, you know, people like say, oh, you won gold at Pan American Games. It's just like, oh, yeah, I did. It was extremely hard, extremely cold, (laughs) but I'm definitely glad I won. So it's definitely a feat of mine that I couldn't even imagine that I would do, um, let alone throw a hammer itself. So it was pretty awesome. Like in that moment on the podium, you know, I had my different feelings, but to win gold and like to have it like here in my house is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's super insightful. Your comment about, you know, in the moment, it just feels like this is what I do. It's not until the world responds to you that that you sort of start to understand. The magnitude of it. Right. Yeah, and I think that's what everything, especially with social media, Mm -hmm. with celebrities, with athletes, like in the moment, it's really nothing. Mm -hmm. But like when the world grasps whatever's going on, Mm -hmm. it's just like this big eruption. You've talked about struggling to find your why as an athlete. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think I struggle to find my why as an athlete because of how I guess I've been treated as a Mm -hmm. Black woman being an athlete, especially here in America. Again, I had to search within myself and understand that my biggest why is my kid. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to open doors for him. Mm-hmm. Trying to live so that I can bring back valuable information to him, knowledge to him, just the importance of that. But being a black athlete, 
especially like with my body structure, with my mindset, with my power. It's always difficult being an athlete in America because of how I'm seen, how people try to trigger me, you know, calling me a man or transgender, like that's a bad thing or something. I'm not like any other girl that I knew in college or in high school or even now as an adult. So that's different in itself. But when the world attacks you because of how you look or because of how competitive you actually are, how good you are, and how good you can probably be, it gets a little hard. And when you're good, people want to tear you down. For sure. I don't understand this idea of not being happy for someone because it takes so much work to do what you do and so much sacrifice. And it's this example of, of human capacity at its highest. I want to kind of get into this a little bit. So when you when you talk about people treating you bad, who are those people? People that don't even know me. The people who treat me bad are people who fear me. They fear my voice. They fear how I look. They fear my growth as a person. They fear change. Mm-hmm. So it could be anybody. It can be another Black woman that may think different from me. But mostly the people who don't like me or treat me any type of way are those who are most intimidated by me or those who fear change the most. By your power. Absolutely. They can't, they can't get to you. Yep. They can't stop you. Yeah. Or control me. Or control you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a scary thing for people. Powerful woman. Where does this take place? Social media, fans? So social media, what's crazy is no one has ever been like bold enough to say anything to my face. Of course. I mean, they even create fake pages, right? To like (laughs) stalk me or whatever like that or talk stuff from fake pages, but they'll never say anything to my face. I think that's the biggest thing that confuses me the most because I'm the type of person, if I don't like somebody, like you gonna know it. (laughs) I'm not gonna create a fake page or (laughs) I'm not gonna like secretly hate you. It's just like, I'm just not gonna deal with you. Yeah, most of the time the hate comes from social media, emails. I've had letters written to me, mailed to me, multiple from people who personally know me because a lot of people don't even have my address. So I know it's from people who have known me or who I've trained with or their family members. Well, it makes sense for the personality profile because I think you hit it on the nose where they fear you, right? So these are people that live in fear. They're cowards. Yeah. So of course they're not going to be forthcoming about it. Of course they're going to hide behind screens and fake accounts. They're scared little people. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. All right. So you're from Ferguson. Yeah. And in 2014, you returned home during the protests and vigils for Michael Brown. Can you tell us about that weekend? Man, that weekend was tough. It's something that I'll never forget because I think it was the first time in my life where I was somewhere where you could feel the tension. You can feel the sadness. I've never felt so much sadness and tension in my life from a a bunch of people out in the street that I never even seen in my life. Walking down the street and hearing people protest and hearing people cry and come together and rally and talk, it was just phenomenal. It was the first time in my life where I feel like the human connection because of a certain event. Mm-hmm. I've never felt that in my life, not even at a funeral. It was so tense. It was so sad. It was something that 
I will never forget something that was so powerful, something that was so necessary. But um, again, tragic. Just very, very tragic because it didn't have to be that way. It sounds like this that event changed you a bit. Oh, for sure. I think that was the first insight of me saying, what the hell? What is really, really going on? And I think before the Michael Brown situation, I watched a story, Fruitville Station. I don't know Mm -hmm. um, if people saw that about Oscar Grant. Mm -hmm. So going into Ferguson, my hometown, my streets, I went to the crib trip that they burned down. And, you know, I walked the same streets, probably went to the same parties as Michael Brown, like in everything. Like the, the kid died blocks away from where we played as kids, too. So I felt like that was that was something that just it, it killed me. Mm-hmm. It definitely killed me, and it made me take a look at myself and my future and my son's future. You think it served as a bit of a call to action? For sure. Mm-hmm. I think that was my first dose of saying, "Okay, something something got to give." Right. So looking back, do you think that experience was? was it a catalyst for raising your fist at the podium at, at the Pan Am Games? Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So I went home. I definitely walked the streets, protested. And then that, that same weekend, Dr. John Carlos and um, Tommy Smith, they had a talk at the school that was on the same block as the murder that happened, McClure South Berkeley at the time. And that was my first encounter with them. And I remember I was in the auditorium and I was listening to them talk and I almost cried because it was my first time being face to face with somebody who protested themselves and like went through all of these crazy traumatic things that a lot of people don't even know about to change what just happened in Ferguson. And it was still happening. And so the fact that they spoke at the the school that was on the same block was definitely um, an experience. So, yeah, I feel like. That was a call. Yeah, for sure. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So I'd like to get into a little bit more if you're willing to share about your kind of your path to activism and how that's changed for you over the years. We've talked about some early, I think, very important moments, starting with your, I think, your dad and your grandfather introducing mm-hmm. this, this history, this lineage, you know, and then definitely Ferguson and, and Michael Brown. And where did it kind of go from there? 
I think it, from there, it went to me being uncomfortable, sad, not feeling like I fit into the environment that I was with my first uh, training group for 10 years. I felt like as I grew as a person, the people around me didn't want to see me grow as a person. Like they wanted me to have this suppressed, this scared, this obedient type of attitude, right? This don't don't make anybody mad. You have to have this image because if you don't, you'll lose money or you'll make people look at you different or you'll be too, too loud or too boisterous. Like my environment at the time just wanted me to stay in this suppressed mentality. And I was extremely unhappy for so long and I didn't even know it. I was extremely obedient for so long that I didn't even know that I was losing myself. Mm. And what helped me find myself even more was going to a freedom school. So my friend at the time, well, he was my boyfriend at the time, he was going to school with a teacher who ran a freedom school. And so we would go every Saturday and we would learn about Black culture, Black history, just things that were never taught in school. Kind of, again, another awakening, something that empowered me for sure, just knowing my history and knowing that I'm not just a slave or I'm not just somebody who just came here on slave ships and, you know, the story that we're always told in school. Mm -hmm. I know for sure that empowered me a lot more. So that encouraged me to, like, get out of my comfort zone and get out of the place that I was so unhappy at. And so then I started training with another coach and we would have these profound and like just deep conversations about different things that happened in America and how the first thing that kind of was taken from Black people was their minds. We we don't know who we are and we never did. And so like once you get your mind back, you can accomplish anything because that's the strongest thing, your heart and your mind. And so from then, I started seeing different things. From then, I just, again, reading books, having conversation, networking with people, self-educating myself. And then I made a big statement. <laughs> you, sh you sure did. <laughs> let's get into that. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about the Pan America Games in Peru in 2019. What was your mood leading up to the competition? Did you feel like primed to win gold or were you, did you feel like you were really at the top of your game? A lot of people don't know. When it comes to track and field, only three people can make any team. Oh, wow. It's three people out of the whole America that can make the Olympic team. So it's that much harder. Pan American Games, it was only two. So I remember it was after a, a world championship trial. So for world championships, it's the same as Olympic Games, just a little bit smaller. So Pan Americans was after the world championship team selection. So me and the other girl who made the team, we were pretty exhausted going into the Pan American Games because we had just fought to make the team for the world championships, which is actually a harder team to be on. So we were grateful, but we were exhausted. So I was emotionally exhausted and I was happy, but you know, I was still, you come you on a big high and then you come, you're on a big low too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I remember again, me just, for some reason, being so hated, I remember somebody on this little janky website was just <laughs> like, yeah, so who's going to win so-and-so's gold? Because the girl that everybody loved and wanted to make the Pan-American team, she didn't make it. It was two other girls who made it, and I was one of the girls. So they were already saying like, oh, the gold was hers, and she wasn't even there. So not only was I exhausted, but I was pissed because I'm like, she didn't even make the team. And yet and still, they are not even supporting the girls who made the team. They want the girl who didn't even make the team to win. 
So I was pissed about that. I'm just like, she didn't even make the team. Does that fuel you? The anger? It did fuel me. It mm-hmm. did fuel me, but it also disappointed me because it's just like, it doesn't matter how good somebody is, how much somebody works hard to get to where they're supposed to be. There's always people who think that because of how somebody looks or how somebody fits into society, that they should be the one to be there and not right. you. Right. And it is so constant, especially in track and field. And I'm not afraid to say it, but I'm in a white man's sport. Mm-hmm. So I'm never the one that people want to see be good or win or thrive or make teams, obviously. So that definitely fueled me. Mm-hmm. And I can't lie, that was a little bit of the reason why I did make my statement on the Pan American podium. Mm-hmm. Because here I am breaking barriers and doing things that most athletes who look like me have never done. And it's because we're not supported. It's mm-hmm. because we're not want to be seen mm-hmm. in that atmosphere, in that field of play. So we don't even want to go there. And it is so disheartening. Yeah. So not only was I was glad that I won, it was hard. It was a hard win mm-hmm. because I was competing against some of the best girls in the world. Not only was it a hard competition, but I was just so mad that people just can't encourage people just because yeah. it, it always has to be. We want to support the people who we think should be there, even if they didn't earn the right to be there. Yeah, that is just insanity. Yeah. So that was how I was feeling going into Pan American yeah. Games. Frustrated, angry. pissed, yeah. angry, yeah. tired, <laughs> and just emotionally distraught too because, of course, I'm doing all this research. I'm going to Freedom School. I'm having these in-depth talks with these athletes and homeless people who are coming to my practice and trying to find refuge. It, it was just a lot going on at the time. Yeah. And so when I got on that podium, I was just like, man, this for all the people who need it. So what was the moment that you decided to raise your fist? The, during the whole song, uh-huh. just because of me being educated on the national anthem and the meaning and who wrote it and why they wrote it. The whole song, I was pissed off. <laughs> I'm just like, man, this song don't speak for me. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's not that like I wanted to raise my fist earlier. I feel like it was it was only right for me to raise my fist at the end where the biggest lies are sang about. Land of mm-hmm. the free, home of the brave. Man, that's the biggest lie in the national anthem. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's when I rose my fist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was this buildup, this culmination of all these factors, and then you heard that line, and you're like, I can't sit here and, and stomach this lie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Powerful. In a moment, it was just a me thing, right? I didn't think nothing of it because I knew that I had done something right. I had done something profound and I had done something for the sake of not only my situation, but others who are like me, who are hindered, who are shamed, who are never wanted to be seen in a successful position or just a position to get ahead and to help other people. And so I was just like, why not? So to mm-hmm. me, it was it was nothing. Like it was it was like a no brainer. Mm-hmm. I just did it. But then it was how the world took on to my moment that kind of just blew up my world. <laughs> so let's get into that. So I'm sure that there were two distinct sides, right? Right. The, the opposition and the, and then the people that you spoke to, right? That saw their story there. That that felt represented. Can you kind of talk to those two two groups? So the people who felt represented, I definitely w- was want to speak to them first. I hope that 
my message or my statement or my stance lit something in your souls, in your spirits, and in your hearts. And for yourself, I hope that I was able to show people that bravery is it's not only felt, but it can be seen. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be heard, but I can show you what bravery looks like. I can plant the seed by just a moment or by just a gesture. And it has been done so many times before in history, but I feel like it was necessary in 2019 because of everything that was going on in the world. And definitely in hindsight, 2020, what I did in 2019 was exceptionally necessary. So I feel like I hope my gesture in that moment on that podium just ignited something, whether it's the possibility of saying, maybe I should stand up for myself tomorrow at work when my boss is being an asshole to me. Or an athlete saying, maybe I should tell my coach that some of the things that he says makes me feel uncomfortable. Just just something to say maybe, even if it's just a maybe. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to act on it, but just maybe. That gesture ignited something in their spirit. I love that. For the people in opposition, I feel like anytime somebody does something that you're not able to understand, you hate it first. A lot of people don't look at things and then try to do research or understand why somebody did that. A lot of people don't think like that. So I feel like most people who are in opposition of what I did, they don't even have the capacity to even want to know why. They just know the song that was playing at the time or the flag that was being flown at the time. And they like the song they like the flag. So it's just like, oh, well, she's a traitor. She doesn't like America. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's not true. So for the people who oppose what I did, it's just like, I really don't care how they feel because they don't know how we feel. And I say mm-hmm. we, those who felt something from what I did. Let's just touch on Rule 50 for a second. Were you aware of Rule 50 at the time? Yeah, so what's crazy is like when I first started track and field and I started making my first major teams, anytime I signed a little contract that athletes have to sign, basically signing their rights away, Rule 50 was always something that made me uncomfortable. Even signing the contract always made me uncomfortable. The only thing that I wanted to sign was the fact that I was getting paid for making a team. That's the only <laughs> thing I agree with. Um, it made me feel uncomfortable from the start. So this is before the Michael Brown situation. This is before I went to Freedom School. This is before I even knew who I was. I was always uncomfortable signing my rights away and signing for Rule 50. Well, you just defined for the for the audience what Rule 50 states. So basically, Rule 50 is a rule that does not allow athletes to, quote-unquote, protest, make statements, make gestures that that basically don't coincide with athletics. So any religious statement, political statement, anything that you're feeling that you want to talk about, share, speak out against, you're not allowed to. In the field of play, off the field of play, in the village, athlete village, like anywhere. You're not allowed to do anything but compete and go home. That's it. (laughs) That's it. So were there repercussions for you uh, raising your fist on the podium? Oh, yeah, immediately. Mm -hmm. Maybe as soon as I got off that podium... I got a call from one of the companies that was one of my biggest sponsors, the USA Track and Field Foundation. They called me immediately and was like, yeah, 
we don't rock with that. We don't support it. Don't you ever do it again. And I was immediately defunded. Wow. My funding went from $30,000, $35,000. And they tried to give me a $5,000 grant. Oh, my God. And I was, what, top three in the world? Oh, my God. So, yeah. It was crazy. Like, immediately. I was put on probation by the USOPC, the International Olympic Committee. I was dropped by Nike, who was my sponsor at the time. Nike and, dropped you? Oh, yeah. I was dropped by Nike. So, yeah. I was absolutely financially hindered. No kidding. Yeah. What was your reaction? I wasn't surprised, but I was definitely discouraged. Mm -hmm. I was definitely confused. In the moment, I know what I did was right, right? But mm -hmm. it's hindsight, because this is 2019. All the George Floyd support Black community stuff didn't happen until 2020. So I had did something that no one was ready for. No one had done in 50 years. Everybody was like, oh, snap, what the hell just happened? And this was in August. So come George Floyd's death, everybody was like, oh, she's right. Oh, let's talk to her because she did something before <laughs> all of this. But like, I had done something that to break the mold mm -hmm. and it was so uncomfortable to people mm -hmm. that everybody wanted to de detach from me. Like wow. no one wanted to be associated with me. Mm -hmm. And it was disheartening. What were the responses like from the other athletes or the media at the time? Did they separate as well? Only like athletes who are my close friends backed me or encouraged me or reached out to me. Because again, like nobody knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew how to take it. Mm -hmm. It was something that hadn't been done in so long, 55, 50 plus years. Like John Carlos, Tommy Smith were the only ones who did it. Mm -hmm. I did it 50 plus years later. No one knew what to do. And mind you, the Pan American Games were in August. I still had world championships. So I still had to be on the United States of America team with all my team members and no one, <laughs> no one said anything. <laughs> no one said anything. Because everybody was just like, what do we do? Like, mm -hmm. what the heck? No one knew what to do. What'd your dad That's say? That's crazy. Um, my dad was hyped. My dad was yeah. just like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Way to go. Like, yeah. what you did was amazing. No, what you did was so, so empowering, so strong. My close friends and family were, like, elated. My yeah. grandmother was afraid, of course, because she was like, oh, they're probably going to try to kill you. She was scared. Yeah. She took it straight there. Like, uh -huh. they're going to try to kill you. Yeah. And I was just like, maybe, mom, but yeah. no. Well, she grew up in a, in a generation where, right? Yeah. That that that's what happens. That's what happened for right? sure. And and it, and that's like, do you see like that's scary? Just just that, just what you said right there is so scary to even think of. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Just wasn't that long ago, and yep. and and, it, and we're not that far from it at all. Right. At <laughs> all. At all. Yep. So, did you hear from like people that supported you on social media? I mean, did you get some some love there? Oh, uh, yeah. Social media, you always get love and hate on social uh -huh. media. <laughs> but it was mostly from people who didn't even know me that that felt it. Mm -hmm. Right? It, it wasn't mm -hmm. from a lot of people who knew me. Mm -hmm. That was kind of like the thing that I, I didn't like the most was the people who I spoke for were athletes like me. Athletes who I know for sure were in the same situation as me. And yet and still, they were too afraid to 
support me out loud or say anything. Because they saw what it cost you, right? Exactly. And and I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. I don't blame them, but they need the, they needed that money. They need that support. They need that check. Most of the athletes who the USA Track and Field Foundation funded are black athletes. Mm-hmm. Are athletes who come from nothing. Mm-hmm. Athletes who have been um, racially profiled. Athletes who have some type of instance. All of them. Some type of instance to where being a black athlete in America made them feel uncomfortable. And no one said anything. You know, it was a hard, like, five months. Because I dealt with it for, like, five or six months before George Floyd's death happened, which is sad. But, yeah. And then did things change? Yeah, for sure. Of course. Mm -hmm. Anytime somebody dies, unfortunately, things change only when something bad happens. Mm -hmm. And it's so irritating and aggravating. Mm -hmm. It's like, why can't things change? When something good happens, why does it have to take for something so tragic for people to pay attention to, because it's tragic, Mm -hmm. for people to just wake up? It's so unnecessary. And how many tragedies exactly need need to happen? Because this was this was not something new. Oh, yeah, for sure. Someone had a phone. It's just someone had a phone and it was long as hell. It was a long, drawn out execution. Right. And. Honestly, it was because of COVID. Nobody had nothing else to pay attention to. Totally true. So that's the the main reason why all eyes were on that situation. The whole world saw that because of COVID. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did you feel like you had sufficient support from the USOPC and Global Athlete? Definitely global athlete. I would not say the USOPC because their hands are tied. Like the USOPC can only do so much because their my punishment was handed down from the IOC. The okay. USOPC was pressured from the IOC to do something. Mm-hmm. So of course they had to. It's business, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like they they should have done more to be on my side because again, most of the athletes in America are black athletes who have been through the same things I've been through, who struggle from the same things that I struggle from. But they were definitely pressured mm-hmm. to hand down the to hand down the punishment. Global athlete, I got a hundred percent support from global athlete. I, I really appreciate global athlete for sure. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, global awesome. athlete took it and was like, hold on, like we seeing something happen here. Like we we far her. So I, I definitely appreciate global athlete. That's great. Yeah. Yep. So how do you feel about Rule 50? Do you think it should be abolished? For sure, man. It's outdated. Mm-hmm. Rule 50 is it's outdated because it's hypocritical. How can you silence athletes in any field of play, but you gain so much from their stories? You gain so much from their voices. Like, they make money off of what John Carlos and Tommy Smith did. They're saying, you can't do it, but they make money off of it. Like, they got a museum, <laughs> and they capitalize off of it. So it's just like, which one? Right. It's so outdated. It's a form of control. No doubt. Like, y'all do what we say when we say it. We don't pay you nothing. You don't get shit, mind you. You don't get a damn thing. (laughs) But we're going to capitalize off your story. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of touched on this. A lot has changed since 2019 in terms of activism and its prevalence in the sport world generally. How How does it feel to see that change? Are you encouraged by it? Do you think it's authentic? I'm encouraged by it, but I don't think it's authentic. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's not authentic because it's not done 
enough. It's not consistent. Like people choose to promote or to support athletes who are activists or athletes who are making powerful statements and who are trying their best to um, bring certain issues to life that we need to fix here in America. I think they do it when they feel like it's necessary now. They don't do it because it is necessary. They do it when they feel like it, especially the NFL, the NBA. I, I don't like the fact that people only capitalize off something or speak on something in a moment. Mm -hmm. This is not like a momentary thing. Mm -hmm. Like freedom, justice, equality, that is something that always needs to be talked about. Not just when somebody dies mm -hmm. on a nine-minute video. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's just not fair. So I feel like there needs to be more authenticity in the sport world. Because, again, most sports in these um, businesses are like athletes. So I think it needs to be taken more seriously. Am I encouraged by the growth? Absolutely. I feel like the WNBA did something amazing with flipping the state. That's something that's never been done. And sports no allowed question. that. So am I encouraged? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But does there need to be more authenticity for sure? Has your approach to activism changed or shifted since these events? Has it become an even bigger part of your life? I feel like it's shifted my life for real because I'm back in school now. I'm getting my master's so that I do have just more credibility when I want to start really putting pressure on these companies, these organizations, these businesses. So yeah. my activism has pushed me into this because I told myself I'm never going back to school. I'm not getting a master's. I'm not getting another degree. But I guess I need that paper. <laughs> so, no, yeah. I, th I think that's awesome. Uh, yeah. what, what are you getting in your master's in? Um, I'm getting it in public health with an emphasis on cultural competency. Cultural competency is basically just the study of knowing what you need to do or knowing when is necessary to serve the people that you're trying to serve. Got it. So That's really cool. Yes. Back in school. Well, I'm back in school. Has your activism strengthened your desire to participate in sport? Actually, no. no. It strengthened my desire to hurry up and be done with sport. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, come on, let's face it, like, we have enough icons. Like, we have enough LeBron James, Simone Biles, Serena Wood. Like, we have that. Like, mm -hmm. we don't need another great athlete. We, we, we got that. We have that mm -hmm. all the time. What we need is great athletes who are advocating for communities, who are mm -hmm. building blocks for low-income families, who are feeding or teaching people who have no education and who have no opportunity how to be financially stable or how to make better decisions for their kids' sake. Like, we need more philanthropic work from athletes and not just great you know, athletics from athletes. We just need more. We need something different. You're really about it. I mean, you're yeah. really about this this bigger than you. Yeah. Cause. Yeah. I, I want to build blocks. I want to build homes. I want to teach people who don't have the the proper opportunities or just the proper, like, just tunnel to get to where they need to be. Because one conversation can change somebody's life. Just one. One, one conversation can make somebody make better decisions for the sake of their children so that their children won't live in poverty as well. Just one. Like, I want to be that athlete. You know, I'm a great athlete, top in the world. I've been there for so long. But it's just like, what else can I do? It's not just about being a great hammer thrower. That get boring, man. <laughs> it's already boring. I can't talk. It's boring. I want to do something else. 
So, you yeah. are doing. You, uh, you're yeah, doing I it. I am doing something. You're else. Doing I'm it. in school. I'm in school. I'm bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's legit. Gwen, I can't thank you enough. This thank has been so, so incredible. My favorite interview I've ever done ever. And <laughs> thank you. I can't wait to see how you light Thanks. up the world next. It's just incredible. Thank you so much yeah. for letting me be myself and have me. I know I cuss. Yeah. Maybe y'all might have to bleep that out, but <laughs> thank no, you guys. We're not going to bleep anything out. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and that was my extended interview with Olympic hammer thrower and Pan American gold medalist Gwen Berry. The debate on Rule 50 is a complicated issue, and one that I think we need to continue talking about. It's so important that athletes like Gwen share their story. I absolutely loved this conversation, and I'm so honored that she shared her experience with me. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. Original music by James Lavino. A special thanks to Allison Cohen, Matt Azenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. Next time on Torched. I talked to Olympic bobsledder Alana Myers-Taylor about her impressive wins in 2022 and what it was like to compete in her first Olympic season as a mom. I think going into this Olympics, that's one of the reasons why I was motivated to even try. It's because so often we're told as women, once you become a mother, your life is over. You can't do anything else. I just wanted to go out there and show that there's still a way for you to live your dreams while being a parent. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.